kind of uh, raise your hands if uh, you're all about celebrating Christmas as soon as possible, before Thanksgiving. Raise your hands. We got a few of you here. All right, now raise your hand if you're like, no, not till after Thanksgiving. All right, and raise your hand if you you and your spouse disagree on the matter. Yeah, you're brave. Yeah. That's how I've, I've noticed that happen this year, and uh, we thought we'd have some fun with it, and historically in the life of the church, Advent is actually a season where we prepare for Christmas, but um, in our culture, Advent is just a, an extension of Christmas. We don't really celebrate the 12 days of Christmas after Christmas. We celebrate Christmas the whole month of Advent. So we thought, well, let's kind of play with this idea. The next two weeks, we're going to do a series that it, maybe historically would have been more of an Advent series, but it's just, hey, it's not Christmas yet. Now, so if you love Christmas, this is a win for you because we're talking about how it's not Christmas yet, which is basically still talking about Christmas. But if you're like, no, we should wait for Thanksgiving to celebrate Christmas, it's like, well, that's what we're talking about, is we're going to look at some stories in the Old Testament, stories that talk about what the world looked like before Christ came, the world before it was Christmas yet. And so it's kind of a win-win for, for both of us. But the Christmas story, in fact, the whole New Testament, was, it was written for Old Testament people. There are so many allusions and references and jabs at the Old Testament in the Christmas story that you really miss the full meaning of the story if you're not familiar with what was happening in the Old Testament. You know, reading the Christmas story without knowing the Old Testament, it's like jumping to the final book of Harry Potter, um, having never read any of the others, or jumping to the final book or the final movie of of a trilogy. It might still be a good story, but you've missed so many fun references, So we don't have time, of course, to cover the whole Old Testament before Advent in two weeks. That would be quite the feat. But over the next two weeks, we are going to look at two parts of it, two parts that I hope will help us understand a number of subtle references in the Christmas story. Because when Advent comes on the other side of Thanksgiving, we are going to walk through the Christmas story in a, in a unique way. We're going to spend some time with four carols that show up in the Christmas story. And even these, as well as the stories surrounding them, are referencing so many, so many things in the Old Testament that if you don't get it, you're missing so much of what the story is about. So of all the people in the Old Testament that were pivotal to the Christmas story and to the Gospels in general, uh, it's without a doubt the king uh, David, the king of Israel. He, he stands above all the rest. In fact, his name is referenced 10 different times in the Christmas story. Four of those are in the Gospel of Matthew version of the Christmas story, and six of those are in the Gospel of Luke. 10 specific references to King David. Now, he's mentioned many, many more times throughout the rest of the Gospels as a very significant character tied to what it means for the Messiah to come. So we're going to spend some time there today looking at the, the story of King David. A, a number of weeks ago, we had the chance to really dig into the to the character of Saul and, and when we were looking at a ghost story, if, if you were here with us. And now we get to kind of see a little bit of the flip side of, of his nemesis, Saul's nemesis, the person of David. To understand really David's significance, you need to understand the bigger picture of the reign of all of Israel's kings. And there's dozens of kings, dozens of prophets and tales of war and idols and pain and suffering. It's this epic drama you can read the drama in the books of Samuel and the books of Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, as well as many of the prophets are rooted around the stories of the kings. But if I'm honest, these stories and dramas are sometimes hard to read because they're nestled often in what feels like very brief and even boring catalogs of the kings of Israel. While there are some great stories in the book of Kings, much of it is this brief, no more than a couple paragraphs, summarizing an entire life or reign and quality of each king, and then quickly just moving on to the next. If you've read through the book of Kings, then you know what I'm talking about. 
But what's interesting about these summaries is that they focus most often on one particular thing. They don't care so much um, about the life of the king. They're interested in whether the king was a good king or a bad king. So it's this very typical, oversimplified political lineup. They list the kings through the ages, listing the good ones and the bad ones. We could do that with our presidents, and we might not all agree. But Saul, he was the first king, bad king. King David, second king, and he was a great king. Solomon, third king, the last king before the kingdom was divided, eh, kind of a good king. And then you skip around to Rehoboam, bad king. Ahab, really bad king. Omri, bad king. Hezekiah, mostly good king. Josiah, good king. Bad king, good king. And on and on. With a total of 19 kings in Judah and 19 in the northern kingdom. And then of those, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon before the kingdom divided. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't say good or bad. It uses a different phrase. It says, either they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord... In the eyes of the Lord, they did what was right, or they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And generally speaking, the Bible refers to them in these very broad strokes, almost to the point that it seems like either they did everything right in the eyes of the Lord, or they could do nothing right before God. And honestly, if you think that's really overly simplistic, you're right. It is overly simplistic. If you look at their stories you'll find that none of them were so bad or so good as that. They were this mixture of good and bad, like we are, like most people. Uh, the bad kings weren't necessarily bad at being kings. And the good kings don't necessarily behave that much differently from the bad ones. Take King David, for example. He's the one that's referenced in the, king, uh, the Christmas story. He's the topic of what we're talking about today. But he was by far you know, listed in the Bible as the best of kings. All other kings were compared to him. He was this ideal. He was the best. But he wasn't that great. As far as behavior goes, he wasn't much better than others. For example, he was a warrior and a soldier. He would go to battle, and he spilled tons of people's blood. He fought Goliath and won, which the people loved. They would sing songs about how many people David, you know, that's what you looked for in a king back then. He's like, oh, David's killed so many people. What a great king. But this is what God had to say about it. He says in 1 Chronicles 22, but this word of the Lord came to me, to David, you have shed so much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for me, for my name, because you have shed much blood in the earth and in my sight. So, so even here, you start to get this sense like the people, they're singing about how bloody David was. And God's like, well, you spilled so much blood that we're going to have Solomon build the temple. We're not going to, I can't let you, sorry, David, like you just killed too many people. But even more than just violence. He engaged in all kinds of sin. In fact, in a matter of two chapters, he breaks half of the Ten Commandments. First, he covets his neighbor's wife. Second, he steals her from him. Then he commits adultery. Then he lies about it. And then to cover it up, he kills her husband. Like, he's just knocking off the Ten Commandments. You know, one more, he gets one free. He was far from perfect. He does some good things, but not all good. So what does it mean when the Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of God. Well, one thing I can tell you for sure, it had nothing to do with whether the king was successful. 
had nothing to do with they, whether they were a good political leader, whether they were good at international politics or good foreign policy or they won in battles or they lowered the deficit or they built a wall. And that sounds like a modern reference, but that's very much an Israeli reference in the Old Testament. Whether they were respected by people. For example, a number of kings of Israel were all of these things. They were really good kings. And we know they were good kings because according to the world, they actually made the history books. The character of like David, he barely shows up on the map of history, like outside of the Bible. But these other kings, they were so influential, so connected, so accomplished, so great at international policy, expanding the kingdom of Israel, that other people outside of the Bible said, oh yeah, one of those kings was Omri. We know from sources outside of the Bible that he led a powerful monarch. He was this great leader. He was a powerful warrior. He established this really strong dynasty in Israel. And yet in scripture, he's given nine verses. And here's one of them. It says this, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. First Kings 16, 25. Omri was this no good, nobody. Well, we know historically he was a great king as far as the world was concerned. But from the basis of scripture, terrible king. Because he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He sinned more than all of those before him. Well, there has to be something more than that. Because while he sinned, did he really sin more than David? And if so, by how much? How much does one have to sin in order to move from the good camp to the bad camp? What's the threshold for separating the good kings from the bad kings? I mean, I, I just think we're missing something here. What makes, what's the difference between a good king and a bad king? To answer this, I think we'll have to go all the way back to the beginning of the kingdom. Before there was a kingdom. When the people were ruled by prophets and judges and there was no centralized government. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll look at a couple of verses. But it's 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting with verse 4, and we'll have them on the screen as well. At this time, the nation of Israel is run by prophets and these local leaders called judges. But here we see this conversation that leads to the formation of a king. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse, chapter 8, verse 4, and it says this. So... All of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Samuel, you're not going to make it much longer. We like you, but you're not, you know, you've got an end date. And your sons do not follow your way, so we don't want them to be judges over us. Now is the perfect time to appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They're asking for their first king. They asked Samuel, the current judge, the most powerful judge, a local leader, not a centralized government. They said, we want a king so that we could be like the other nations. Here's the thing we need to realize about the other nations that he's referring to. About a century before this time in the region of Mesopotamia, it became increasingly common for kings to tell their people that they weren't just kings, but gods. In an attempt to increase their persuasion over people and gain more power and more land, they would tell stories about how they weren't just kings, but God in the flesh living amongst them. And that's what was going on in the neighboring kingdoms with the neighboring kings and would continue in a variety of ways all the way through the Greek and Roman Empire. And so the people of Israel come to God and they say, we want a king like the other nations. They didn't just want a king. They wanted someone in an authority they could trust that they could set up as some kind of God, someone they could follow, someone they could see, not like their God who was invisible and sometimes hard to know, hard to listen to. 
And so in this context, how do you think God's going to, you know, respond to this? Well, verse 7, you can almost hear the rejection in God's voice. He says, they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving not other gods, right? I mean, not other kings, but specifically says serving other gods, 1 Samuel 8, 7. God didn't want them to have a king because God didn't want anything to stand in the spot that belonged to him. He was their king. Thus, it's no surprise that there are so many bad kings in Israel and Judah. God didn't just like their just didn't just dislike their behavior. He was against the role. It's like a kid who's somewhere in between that age where they're old enough to kind of watch themselves, but also maybe still needs a babysitter. And the kid's like, I'm old enough to stay home by myself. And the parent's like, no, you need a babysitter. And so the parents get a babysitter anyways, and the kid hates every babysitter you get. Not because necessarily the babysitter's bad. The babysitter might be bad as well. But because I don't like the role. I don't think there should be a babysitter. That's what God's saying. Like God is so opposed to these kings, not just because they were bad, because David was bad at times too, but because they were taking a role that he primarily wanted. So to be a good king, you had to take this into account. And that's what made David special. And he really was special. He's very significant. His entrance into the story shifts God's perspective entirely on whether it was possible for Israel to even have a king. God loved David's kingdom so much that that he even promises to keep it alive. God's first promise to the people of Israel was was in the person of Abraham. He met Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to do something special with your family. I'm going to, you're going to, you don't have any kids yet, but you're going to have kids and they're going to number, they're going to outnumber the stars and I'm going to preserve your family. That was the promise that the people of Israel had. But when David came along, he said, I'm not only going to preserve Abraham's family, which David was a part of, but I'm going to preserve your kingdom. Here's the promise specifically, 2 Samuel 7, 16. It says, your house, God speaking to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God promises David that his kingship will live on forever, that his throne will never fail. In other words, he's saying that his children will always give birth to kings. So here's God. This is an interesting part of God's story. God goes from, I don't think you should have kings, to, wow, David, you're such a good king. I'm going to go ahead and just preserve your kingdom forever. I mean, how how did that shift happen? It's a shift that can't be measured by outward success, personal morality, or even how much integrity someone has. It was a shift that God made because God could see something in David that others couldn't. We considered this verse uh, a couple weeks ago. I even joked about it, but but that doesn't change how significant it is. God was talking to Samuel, and they were looking at who was going to be king after after Saul because Saul wasn't doing a good job. And, uh, and, and they, they think the king should look a certain way. And so you have this verse in 1 Samuel 16, 7, where it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Um, speaking of one of the brothers who looked better than David. The Lord does not look at the, the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. When, when God saw David, he didn't see what we saw. I mean, even just that one example, the people saw David as this warrior who killed a bunch of people, and God says, no, 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 actually, I see somebody who spilled too much blood. You can't build my house. God was seeing something deeper under the surface. David, at this time, was nothing more than a shepherd. He played a little music, 
maybe was part of a little local indie band, you know, something, you know, he wrote poetry quietly in his room. He was this kind of guy, the classic introvert artist who spent time alone in the fields. But this little shepherd poet was chosen by God. And it goes without saying that he's chosen not because of what Samuel could see or what other could see, but because of what God could see in him. Let's pause there for a second. We've been asking the question, what does it mean to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? And we've asserted that it must mean more than the sum of our mistakes or our successes. Well, here I think we have our answer. What do we see? What we see is not the same thing that God sees. What we do in the eyes of the Lord is more than just what we see with our eyes. God's eyes dig deeper into who we are, into our heart, into our person. God pays attention to what's going on under the surface and, 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 and not just what's on the outside. So sure, David made mistakes and, and he sinned and he screwed up, and, but even when he did, he repented and he asked for forgiveness. But even more than that, I think there's a desire to seek forgiveness even from God stems from yet a deeper desire still. With all of David's flaws and weaknesses and mistakes and shortcomings and the ways in which he corrupted power and allowed power to corrupt him, deep in his heart, he had one desire deeper still. He understood the greatness of God. God was worth repenting to, worth following, worth praising. And we know just what is in David's heart because he spilled it out time after time in the Psalms, in the poems he wrote about the glory of God. David was so relentlessly confident in God's worth. Something had convinced David in the depths of his heart that God was worth more than anything else. And he spent his life trying to articulate just how much God's worth is. Listen, listen to how he describes it in Psalm 145. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. You can't even begin understanding how amazing God is. You can't, you can't even begin to fathom it. You can't, your mind can't handle it. I can't handle it, but I'll write about it, and I'll try and articulate something to explain to people just how great God, and I didn't do this, but we probably could have looked at the songs today and the closing song later, and we probably could have found numerous lines that were pulled out of the Psalms. David's heart still kind of pouring out, even now, thousands of years later. Over and over and over again, David wrote song after song after song, trying to give just a little more praise to God, and yet it was never enough. He could never give enough. God was always better and greater and bigger and more worthy than anything he could put into words. And so to David, God was more than just a force to believe in, more than just a force to trust, more than just a force to respect. David believed God was something to give praise to. You can read the Psalms and you'll see. Here's the difference. Other kings were probably too busy seeking their own praise, trying to act like God. They didn't have the heart or the time to give the true king praise. It's like the bad kings and had their eyes, you know, the, the eyes of the people were turned towards them and, and they kept looking for more and more recognition, more and more power, more and more praise. Let me tell you how great I am. Let me tell you all of my accomplishments. More and more. But David had his eyes turned upwards, giving more and more praise, more and more power, more and more recognition to God as a way of saying that I'm not God. I'm not the one you should be looking to, but I, I'll try, I'm going to try and point him out. In other words, David made a good king because he didn't get in the way of God being the ultimate king. 
And the reason God didn't want his people, his sacred people, to have a king was because kings, leaders in general, are naturally put in places where they can more easily intercept or absorb the kind of things that belong to God alone. Things like praise, power, recognition, honor. These are the things that we as people or the world in general should give to God. But when someone rises in power, they become king over others, when they're leading others, when they gain celebrity status, when they're at the top of their class, when they're the president of their organization, their chair of their department, boss of their employees, pastor of a church, well, it's likely that they now are just accidentally put into a place where it's easy to intercept the things that belong to God. And David was this great king because in God's eyes, um, he was a great king in God's eyes because he refused to intercept those things. Not always, right? Not perfect, but more often than not. A worship leader is a unique kind of leader in the church. Their job is to uh, direct our attention away from them and onto God. And, and I'm not talking about a worship leader just like, you know, Ryan's our worship leader, does a great job. Someone who plays music leads us in a singing component, but, but in a much larger sense. If you want to lead in the church, or if you want to lead in a way that honors God, then you are in some way, in a small way, a worship leader. You are hopefully leading people by pointing them to God. That's, that's all a worship leader is, in a general sense. Someone who helps us see God points to God. And there's really um, one big way that a worship leader can fail. If they, if I, leave you remembering myself more than the one I'm supposed to be pointing to. If you walk away out of church and you're like, man, Joe is just so impressive, I've failed. If you walk away and you're like, man, Ryan is just, man, I, Ryan's such a great, we've failed. If you walk away from a small group, I just think the small group leaders in our small group are just the best small group leaders we could ever have. None of these things are bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage each other and talk about how we do things well. Please, you know, if you want to encourage me, I'll gladly accept it. I love, you know, no obligation, but, you know, it's nice. Ryan, I'm sure our small group leaders, all these people. But what I'm saying is, is like there is a certain amount of if you, receive, if you walk away and you haven't left in some sort of greater awe of who God is. In fact, that's the greatest encouragement you can give me is not to tell me how great I am, but how you learn something new about God or you learn to see something a little bit differently or you, you learn to, to wrestle with something in a way you hadn't wrestled with. That encourages me more than anything else. I want to be that kind of leader. I can't say that I always am or that I've always been. But I want to set that up as the standard. That's the expectation. That's what I think is expected of our leaders. That's not just, I think, what we expect. I think it's what we long for. And I'm confident of this. If that was the kind of leader the people had asked for, I think God would have gladly given it to them because that's the kind of leader God is interested in. That's the kind of kingdom God came to establish. God wants a kingdom where God is king, and that's what matters. So this continued, but not like expected. It's true that the kingdom of Israel lived on for a number of generations, 19 kings in each kingdom, but eventually it falls to the nations around them. And yet, God's promise to, to continue David's kingdom remains true. It per perseveres. It lives on. Isaiah, in a time when the literal kingdom was falling apart, Isaiah said this would happen. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. When the angel visits Mary, she's scared as you would if any angel visited you. And the angel says to her, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. David and David's kingdom was just a placeholder, a picture of what was yet to come. And in this new kingdom, this is what's so great, and Jesus explains this later in the Gospels, that, that he was not just a son of David, he was better than David. His kingdom would be better than David's. The real Messiah wouldn't be a king like a king in this world. A real Messiah would be born and, and placed in a feed trough. And his entire life would be lived below the poverty line, never once sleeping in a palace of kings. The real Messiah would be forced to be a refugee with no, next to no human rights, not a citizen of Rome, no right to an attorney, no right to defend himself against the court of his peers. He was a nobody and without a home, no place to lay his head is what Jesus says. The real Messiah would go from town to town sharing the good news, never seeking power, never seeking comfort, never seeking others' approval. He would heal the stick. He wouldn't kill his enemies like David. He would love them. He, he wouldn't hide away in the palace and take whatever he wanted. He would go to the people no one else wanted and give them hope. He wouldn't rule. He would serve. He wouldn't steal. He would give. He wouldn't take other people's lives. He would lay down his own. He wouldn't spill other people's blood. He would spill his own. And when he died, he would, as a criminal, on a cross... And then even reaching the lowest possible place, rise again. And even then didn't think about himself, but turned around and offered us a taste of that resurrection power and a chance to share in a new life with God. And this is what it looks like when we let God be king. And that's why it's so essential that before we get to Christmas, before we celebrate the birth of a king, that we recognize just how great this world and our lives would be if we stepped down from our thrones and let the one who knows best have full reign in our lives and in our community. That's what Christmas is all about. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we get ready for our closing song. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you and we give you thanks. Lord, we join in with all of creation recognizing that you are king over all. Those ways in which we wrestle, those ways in which we struggle, those ways in which we want to be in charge and control our own destiny, we just ask, we confess, Lord, we confess those things. We ask that you would, in fact, this coming holiday season, remind us that your kingdom is here as it is in heaven. Every time, one of us. says your will, not my will. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.